Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is back in my hometown of Birmingham in England, which means that I'm in Europe, which is somewhat perfect considering that we're going to move focus uh, this week. And uh, we're not doing the UK, the US or even Canada. We're going to turn our focus to the Federal German Republic. And we have with us Tyrion Fisher who is uh, an outsider's insider, or is it an insider's outsider? May, uh, one of those is probably correct. Who is an American who's been domiciled in Berlin for, for how long now, Tyrion? I've been living in Berlin since uh, April, but I've been living in Germany since 1993. Uh-huh. So you're practically German then. You've, I'm sure you've forgotten the odd English phrase. Well, I keep listening to your podcast to keep up. <laughs> so so Tyrion is an expat, somebody who has been in, in Germany for quite some time, and he's going to be able to give us somewhat of an expert eye view as to how the German political system works, because this election, which just happened, what, the, the election was in... Oh, crumbs. When, when exactly was that? Uh, and this is, goes to the, one of the key parts why this is actually uh, fascinating. Oh, September the 26th. So, yeah, there you go. So the election was uh, September the 26th. The result was known definitely by the 27th in terms of which Correct. parties had what result. But it's only been in the last week that we've had the coalition agreement. So first off, before we, we kind of um, look at that coalition agreement, why does it take so long for Germany to decide who exactly is going to be the next chancellor after it uh, goes to the polls? Well, uh, in terms of the numbers, percentage-wise, a couple of different po- uh, coalitions were possible. So theoretically, the coalition that we had before, the CDU, CSU, and the SPD, the Grand Coalition, was possible. 
Then the so-called Jamaica coalition would have been possible with the CDU as the black color and the Jamaican flag and the green the Greens and the and the FDP for the yellow. And uh, the third possibility was the traffic light coalition that we have. Sharon, uh, let, let me jump in. I think you've slightly jumped the gun. Uh, the, the, yeah. an- the answer I was expecting is because no political party gets more than 50%. So, the, so all German governments are somewhat of a coalition. Right, right. Yeah, I left that out. There was not a possibility, yeah. There was that, that, that that's only been a possibility once in, in all of German history. Well, that's what I found somewhat fascinating when I did my a little history lesson deep dive was that it was actually the, the Christian Democrats and the Christian Social Union, which are the Bavarian offshoot of the, of the same party that in the 50s and the 60s were able to basically have like a one party government but ever since then german politics has meant that there has to be this kind of wrangling this kind of horse race after the election uh, to find out which party is going to lead the government but then who is going to be the kind of secondary party and traditionally it's been the centrist party which has almost been the kingmaker hasn't it been well, I, I think mostly you would say either the, the centre-left SPD or the centre-right CDU-CSU was, the, major, was the, the senior partner and they needed a junior partner. And traditionally, it was the FDP until the FDP switched sides from Helmut Schmidt in, I think it was in the 80s, right? Early mm-hmm. 80s. And went to the uh, went to the CDU with Helmut Kohl. That was the beginning of the Helmut Kohl reign. And so, yeah, and and this time, two parties weren't enough. This is the first time that two parties weren't enough to make a majority. So it, except if it had been a grand coalition, but nobody wanted the grand coalition again. The grand coalition had sort of uh, petered out, lost all dynamism. And uh, both parties were sort of being drawn, sucked into the center, and nobody knew exactly which party stood for what. And they weren't able to have much of a profile. That's interesting that you say that the party's been kind of sucked into to the centre. We've had 16 years worth of Angela Merkel, who has been the preeminent European politician. You know, she's, I couldn't believe it. When, when you, you say 16 years, but to put it in perspective, there's a shot of her doing her first conference with Western leaders when she became Chancellor of Germany. And Jack Chirac was still the president of France. You know, uh, Tony Blair was the Prime Minister of England. And there have been one, two, three, four other British Prime Ministers since that. And that's before we then look at Germany. You know, Bush was the president. So explain to us the effect that she's actually had on German politics, of which you kind of characterise by saying the parties are almost kind of sucked into the middle. How do Germans view her tenure? Well... I think it's been it's been a long transition. I think, uh, as you as you point out, sixteen years is a long time, and she was quite a bit younger. And there's a really great movie in German theaters right now uh, called The Unbendables or The Unbeugsam uh, about German women in, in in politics since the beginnings of the Federal Republic of Germany. And it's a great document of the struggles that women politicians go through. But the last scene of it is uh, Schroeder, the, the chancellor before her, 
um, saying in a TV round with all of the uh, people right after the, after the election, with all the uh, candidates, the chancellor candidates after the election, that nobody wants her as chancellor. And uh, the next scene in the movie is her being sworn in. So I, I think that's sort of a document of, the, of, of at least the feeling that, he, uh, that Schroeder had at the time, that he was able to say that on television. I mean, it, it, it was sort of a nasty comment in any event, but, but he felt okay saying it. Some people said he, he might have been uh, drunk at the time. But in any event, uh, she was a bit of an underdog coming in. And I, I think they're going to be looking back three three things that will everybody will remember her for and certainly the first one is the uh, the the euro crisis and the and the and the financial crisis of 2008 where she instituted or, or brought through a law uh, making uh, what they call short work so essentially shortening uh, the work working week and providing funds for companies so that they could keep the workers on and essentially nobody lost their job i mean the the unemployment uh, did not go up during the crisis and uh, i think everybody uh, was very grateful for for that the second one of course is then the the refugee to the refugee situation 2015-2016, where Germany absorbed well over a, a million refugees. And there was the moment where they were all at the Hung Hungarian border. And the EU has a system of, of distributing the refugees. They're, I mean, they're not distributing. They're supposed, to, they're supposed to get registered in the country that they come in, and that country has to deal with them. And Hungary was not at all ready to deal uh, with all the refugees at their border. And so she sort of broke protocol and said, we're going to take you. And, and of course, the rest of the history, they all came, or most of them came to Germany. They did get distributed a bit through, through I don't want to say Germany took them all, but they did get distributed to, to some of the uh, northern, northwestern countries. Sirin, let, let, yeah. let me stop you on that, that point, because it's inconceivable let's just call call this and let's just be honest it's inconceivable that the united kingdom or the united states would take in one million brown people in uh, a matter of less than a year inconceivable um how did she manage to do that without having massive political blowback well, it's not quite true that she didn't have massive political blowback. The AFD was sort of a minor part. So the, the, the far-right alternative for Germany or alternative for Deutschland, AFD, uh, was uh, had no chance of getting into any parliaments in 2014. And with the, with the refugee crisis, they, they did get in, uh, eventually even into the lower house of uh, parliament, the Bundestag. So there was a blowback, but I think it is a testament to, to organization. I mean, it was a lot of stress at the time in the country, but a, a testament to, to German organization and, and ability to deal with the, these crises. And I think a, a lot of people respect her personally for, for, for pulling it through. And, and, and the quote that everybody remembers was, wir schaffen das, so we'll, we'll get it done, we'll do it. Um, and uh, some people, you know, still uh, don't like to talk about her or, or talk about it. But I, I think most people respect uh, the moral fortitude mm. um, that it took. You, you said there were, there were three things that she's going to be remembered by, and I, and I stopped you on, on point number two. What's the, the third and final one? Yeah, the pandemic. 
so so the the, the current uh, situation that we're still in but I, I think you know her critics would say she was never uh, very good you know with figuring out a, a plan for the future a, a visionary she wasn't much of a visionary really I think is the problem and, and a lot of the l- legislative progress that's been made in the last years has really come from the SPD and she should have just took it over and that was sort of a problem for the CDU CSU and also for the SPD that she was taking over their uh, uh, policies and getting credit for them. And, but I think besides the critics who say that, you know, she's just responding to crises and, and not really much of a visionary, I, I think what, and I've talked to many Germans who've said uh, they never voted for her, but they're going to miss her. And, and, and they wish they could vote for her now. And I, I really think talking to a lot of people, what, what stands out about her is she's, you know, almost the polar opposite to somebody like Trump or Putin. She's very quiet, very reserved. She's got a bit of a sense of humor. She, she's a backroom dealer. I think German politics tends to, to make backroom dealers out of their politicians. They're, you know, they're not the super, usually the super charismatic types. They're... they're but the strange thing is, is, is the last one standing is in control, and she she was like that. She got her she got rid of her her uh, opponents. It, somehow they all disappeared, and, and that's also a problem. That's one of the reasons why the the CDU isn't able to continue in her in her legacy because she managed to get rid of anybody who was number two in the party, who well, might have threatened her. Well, that that's a, a great jumping off point for us. So the CDU has a, a new leader now. But tell us about that whole process. If you've been leading a party for some 16 years, apart from just slaying all potential um, opponents, you know, you, you're going to leave a void anyway. So how has the CDU gone about getting its new leader, knowing that she was going to step down in this election? And then we'll start to move on to the setting of the current um, election, which happened in September. So... What what usually it, it, it depends on the party. The, the CDU uh, tends to the CDU. Now we're talking about not the CSU, not the Bavarian sister party. The CDU has a the leader of the party. If the if the if they have the chancellor uh, chancellery, then the chancellor is usually the leader of the party. And Merkel was the leader of the party, the chairman of the party for for much of her of her time. But at some point, she hands it over to somebody else to take over those those duties, and that would sort of normally be the the, the designate for for her successor. And uh, most of them sort of died in that position. So, sort of the second you know the second uh, league, if you will, the minor leagues of German politics are the federal states. And generally speaking, the, the bigger federal states, the, the premier equivalent to a U.S. governor is then sort of picked as, as the, the head of the party. And that, that's who Laschet was. He was the uh, premier of uh, North Rhine-Westphalia. Gotcha. Right. So we have a situation whereby the world is under uh, a century defining pandemic, at least initially Germany is seen as do, been doing uh, quite well in, in that pandemic. And people seem to be quite adherent to the various rules, etc. I, I myself was in Berlin just last year, and people were f- scrupulously following all of the diktats uh, that people 
had to do. So we have a pandemic. We have a situation whereby Britain has exited the European Union. Why is it that the the CDU, the Christian Democratic uh, Union, went into this election, not on a, a wave of popularity, but kind of knowing that they were going to be in for a fight with the SDP, the Social Democrats. What what has actually changed, would you say, in German politics that meant that the outcome of this election was going to be the first one for some, for some 16 years, which potentially nobody could call? Going into the election, people actually thought that, that Laschet was going was gonna to be uh, much stronger. And because he, he, he was pretty well liked in his, his federal state of North Rhine-Westphalia, but he just wasn't very personable. And the party started to lose. And at the same time, uh, the, Gre- the Green Party went way up. They, cho- they, they, they put Annalena Baerbock forward. And, and actually, for, for a couple of days, the Green Party was polling above the, the CDU, which is uh, way above historic levels. So usually the, the Green Party is somewhere in the uh, 8 to 15 percent range. And the the SPD is somewhere uh, in the low twenties, and the, the the CDU CSU is in the thirties, and 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 so the uh, CDU was dropping down into the low twenties, and the Greens overtook them, and then the the candidate for the the Green Party, Annalena Baerbock, had a couple scandals, and the Green Party sort of steadily went down. Uh, to a pretty high level, but not not to where where you know not as low as the you know not a terribly low level, but not not as high as they had been. And slowly but surely, this SPD this candidate Scholz, who has been the finance minister in in the last, who's kind of a dull guy. He's one of the Guardian actually painted him as having the charm of a, a mid level bank teller, and and he's very monotone when he speaks. Uh, so uh, it was kind of surprising, but because Baerbock had made so many mistakes and Laschet made some mistakes, uh, the SPD went way up in the polls at the end and uh, overtook. Gotcha. So just explain to me the Green Party. Very obviously, I think we're, we, we all kind of understand primarily what, what Green politics actually are. But you said that they were riding really high in the polls i've always seen germany as um, a country which has got really strong green credentials at least politically anyway why do you think they were doing so well now is it a case of because of the kind of kind of climate emergency that germans just think now it's the time for the green party to have more sway or is this kind of lethargy and apathy kind of unfracturing of the left well hmm, let's see well, first of all, uh, so your CDU, CSU is, is primarily your rural population. That, that's their main constituency. Their main voters are the, the rural population and people in favor of big business. The SPD has always traditionally been the party of, of the workers, yeah, of, the, of the unions, like labor in, in, in the UK. In the beginning, and the FDP would be the party of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, doctors, lawyers, professionals, and you know people who have their own businesses. Um, so they 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 represent medium-sized business, big business, but are socially a lot more liberal than the CDU, CSU, and a lot of questions. The Green Party comes in in the early '80s, and they're basically a hippie party. And 
in when the, the Schroeder government came in at the end of the, ni- the 90s, they, there was already a conflict within the party between the, the more realistic side or Rialos uh, side of the party and the fundamental side of the party, the Fundis. And at that point, sort of the Rialos won. You know, we had the Kosovo War and Bosnia and eventually Afghanistan, right? And they, they were a party to those missions. And, and this was, this was the, 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 the Peacenik Party. So they had some problems after that. They, they stayed in government until both parties were voted out and MAFRA came in, but they had a bit of a problem there. They had, they, their, their ideals were a lot higher than what they, were, they realized in government they were able to get through. And I, I think what's happened is over the last, well, in that government as well, the SPD made some laws and legislation that took benefits away from unemployed and, and, and poor and working class, especially the welfare law, uh, reduced the amount of money and increased a lot of penalties for people who were unemployed. And, and they lost a lot of support. And at the same time, uh, the, the one part of the SPD that's sort of the, the let's say, the intelligentsia side, the, the, the teachers, uh, the professors, the students, that might have been in the SPD 30 years ago, we're starting to move towards the Green Party. And I think you can, I think most people would agree that the Green Party is now the party of, of university towns. It's the party of this, it's more the party of cities in general. And the SPD has lost a, a, a lot of uh, voters to the Green Party. So that's, that's, that's part of the reason why the Green Party was riding so high at the beginning of the campaign. And I think just a lot of people were, were, were looking towards the Green Party as the only party that really had a clear vision on the left side. They, they didn't really know what the SPD wanted. They didn't really know what the CDU wanted, but the, the Greens had a clear program. So I, I think that has a lot to do with why the Greens were able to get so high in the polls. So you've told us about Lachette and Bierbach. Tell us a little bit about Olaf Scholz. Who is he? He's going to be the new Chancellor of Germany. Are people excited about him? I don't think people are excited about him. Uh, I, I, he, like I said before, uh, he, he's got sort of a, monot- a monotone delivery. And his nickname has been the scholz sort of that he's on automatic overdrive or something like that. I don't know. His delivery isn't that great. He's definitely a political insider. So he's been in the last years, he's been the finance minister. He, he's also been in other ministries. He was the vice chancellor of the last, the grand coalition. So he knows government. He knows, he knows the international stage. Uh, I think he is definitely a, a sign of stability. He's from Hamburg. Hamburg, for, for, for United States listeners, Generally speaking, northern Germany is sort of like New England in the United States. The people are a little bit more reserved, a little bit more dry in their humor. Yeah. So uh, he's got a little bit of that. Gotcha. Right. So the election happens in towards the end of September and the SPD end up with, let me have a look at my notes, with 27% of the vote. Well, sorry, 267 which means that they're the largest party for the first time since 2002. The ruling CDU-CSU coalition, they slipped to 24%, which is somewhat of a significant decline since 2017. And the, and the, the Greens have their best election results 
in their history. Explain for us novices who don't know an awful lot about German politics, the machinations of how these parties form their governments and and the various kind of sub rules like the five percent uh, rule etc etc really put us in the places the reason why it takes so long the election was in september we're at the start of december and the government is only just kind of getting into place well you mentioned the five percent rule that keeps small parties out uh, that that's to avoid what happened in the weimar republic so that uh, they're not just a, a myriad of parties uh, and, and it's difficult to get a coalition together like let me leave that but so after the election normally uh, in the ideal situation one party would have a majority um, but that like we've mentioned before hardly ever happened so uh, in most of German history it's uh, it's been uh, a two-party coalition uh, in government but um, this time, uh, the Greens and there were the, the only two parties that could have ruled would have been a, the Grand Coalition continuing. Um, essentially, uh, everybody was tired of the Grand Coalition and uh, I, nobody wanted it. The CDU, CSU didn't want to be the junior partner now uh, to the SPD. Uh, the SPD was happy to, to, to do it with uh, to to govern with somebody else. So uh, they looked to the Greens and it still wasn't enough. Uh, so they needed a third partner. And the third partner was the FDP. And uh, so the, in the very beginning, the FDP was like, uh, made gestures that they might be interested in, in, in a Jamaica coalition, CDU, Greens, and the FDP. Uh, if they had not gone into the <coughs> traffic light coalition, that would have been another option. But uh, essentially, after the election, the CDU-CSU imploded because they had done so much more poor, much so much more poorly than in the previous election. And uh, yeah, when that happens, uh, parties tend to implode. And that's definitely what's happening. So Lashid is still uh, nominally the leader of the CDU-CSU, but they're looking for a new leader. As I kind of understand it, you have um, the various parties and it's kind of the impetus is for the largest party to try and find its coalition parties, coalition partners, sorry, which are going to take it over 50 percent within the Bundestag. So hence, there's a whole lot of wrangling and 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 the parties kind of come into into an election expecting there to be these long drawn out negotiations how exactly does does that work in terms of um policies does um the spd do they go into a negotiation saying right here are two or three policies which are non-negotiable these are kind of negotiable who wants to in effect play with this type of thing give us a real sense of how that horse trading actually works on the policy level and then maybe then give us the examples of the policies of this new government as a way of kind of underlining that whole process and how it works so the the process can be uh, as complicated or as simple as all negotiations can be the uh, the reality is is there was really no other very viable option so all the parties right at the beginning sort of knew we're going to have to make this work somehow. Um, if one of us ducks out, it's going to be pretty 
nasty. I mean, there was sort of the threat of new elections, which has never happened in Germany. Um, And nobody wanted anything else to happen. So right at the beginning, uh, it's sort of many, many uh, rounds of negotiations, pre-negotiations, negotiations negotiations, uh, to, 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 to set up the next negotiations and then final negotiations somewhere down the line. And uh, yes, like you said, uh, each party is going to come to the table with uh, more or less uh, non-negotiables. Uh, and, and now the interesting thing about these negotiations was the last, the last government, the, the CDU, CSU, the Greens and the FDP tried to make a coalition, the so-called a Jamaica coalition and the FDP backed out and then it had to go back to the, uh, to the grand coalition. And they, they, they went in very hard. And part of the problem was, was the CDU, I, I, the, the rumors are the CDU was leaking a lot of uh, what was going on in the negotiations and that was making the negotiations impossible. This time they went into the negotiations and they made a, a, a pact that they weren't going to they weren't going to leak anything. And uh, I think most people feel that that was an incredible sign of dedication to the negotiations uh, and also an incredible trust trust building measure uh, for the three partners. So so. Uh, you, you really got the, every day that there wasn't a leak, there was nothing coming out of the negotiations. Uh, I, I, everybody sort of felt, what's going on? Why, why don't we hear anything? But at the same time, uh, once, uh, once it did land, uh, people were, were, were pretty uh, impressed that uh, the parties had really uh, kept to their word and, and, and kept it secret. So uh, what we found out after, once the negotiation paper uh, was put out, uh, was that uh, each party uh, negotiated pretty hard. And I, and I saw a talk show uh, with, uh, with uh, Linda, the leader of the FDP, and um, Habeck, uh, one of the leaders of the Green Party. And you could see there was a lot of mutual respect there. They're really different characters. Linda's got this kind of frat boy um, Air to him, and Habeck is is uh, is much more reserved and and uh, green. Uh, he, you know, he dresses a little bit more simply and and uh, he speaks a little bit more straightforward. But you could tell there was a, a great deal of mutual respect there, and the, I think the media is trying to find uh, little places where where there's uh, you know uh, problems. But uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, the negotiations uh, went very well. And I think all three parties uh, were able to get a fair amount through. So, yeah, do we want to go into the, uh, to the actual points of the coalition? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think we should now. So, you know, run us over those kind of main kind of policy promises which uh, this coalition government has given to the German people. Yeah. So uh, let's start with the SPD. Uh, the SPD, uh, being you know sort of like the Labour Party, uh, they needed to get some some of their issues uh, through first. And I think uh, the most important uh, one was the uh, twelve euro minimum wage. 
then uh, keeping the... You know what, Tyrion, yeah. just, just very quickly, that surprised me that it was actually that low in in Germany. I presumed, you know, like, in, in the UK, the minimum wage is, it's less than £10, which in, in a dollar value is going to be about 13 14 dollars uh and euros is round about the same uh when you convert it i thought that you guys would have been um a little bit more progressive with uh uh with with, with that type of um legislation yeah i i think it affects 10 million people at the end of the day so it's not uh, something around 10 million uh you, the, the thing about Germany is most people aren't affected by the minimum wage. Most people, uh, wages or uh, salaries are governed by um, labor agreements between uh, the labor unions and the uh, employers' uh, unions or em- employers' associations would be the better word. Uh, and, and those get... Uh, negotiated every couple of years depending on the negotiations themselves if they negotiate that it'll be every two years or five years or whatever uh but uh, most people are are fall under those agreements so the minimum wage is really primarily for for low-level service workers in in the eastern part of of germany and in the rural area but even i mean if 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 you're in Munich and you're and you're cutting hair, you're you're going to be earning uh, probably more than twelve euros an hour. But if you're in you know some pl- some little town outside of Dresden, you might just be getting uh, a three euro haircut. Mm. So it's a, it's a lot more difficult. So uh, it, it helps to balance out uh, the the different areas of Germany. Gotcha. All right. So um, they've promised that uh, there's going to be a twelve euro minimum wage. Um, tell us about pensions. Yeah, that, so that was a, another big thing. I mean, for 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 decades now, people have said that the pensions aren't gonna aren't gonna be secure, and uh, that was part of the uh, agreement that the pensions are gonna stay or at the level that they're at, uh, and and also the age is not gonna go up or down. So that that's uh, a big thing that the that the SPD wanted. The other thing that the SPD wanted uh, was to change. Uh, I, I already mentioned the 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 welfare uh, uh, scheme. Uh, that, that people get after they've been unemployed for a while, uh, it's sort of like welfare in the United States or the dole in the UK. Uh, and uh, like I said before, the, the Schroeder government reduced those uh, the benefits and, and made it easier to get penalties. And uh, they've changed the name to something like citizens' income. Uh, so it sort of sounds like a, a general uh, basic income, but it's not. It's 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 still just a welfare uh, amount, and and the money isn't changing. It just should be more difficult for uh, for the unemployment office to to in, install penalties on people who aren't looking for work and things like that. But um, it, it's it's kind of a, a big name change for the SPD because that was kind of one of the programs that they put through that kind of lost them a lot of votes. And on that note, Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm going to quickly pause you and say uh, to the people in the audience, this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic, which normally looks at US, UK and sometimes Canadian uh, news and and, and politics. Today, we're looking at uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. We're looking at the fact that Germany has just had this two to three months period of political wrangling for it to to come up with uh, the composition of its new new government and we are speaking to American in Berlin Tyrion Fisher who um has given us somewhat of an expert eye view of of how uh, this new coalition is actually going to work so i'm going to finish my questions in uh, approximately uh, 3 minutes or so if you have a question for Tyrion about Germany uh, and its politics and how it goes uh, forming its governments, please raise your hand. I'll call you up on stage. You will be part of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mr. F, there's one thing which is kind of iconic about Germany is it's no speed limit on, on the autobahns. That was somewhat of a political football. Um, tell us why. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the... Uh, the interesting thing about that is the Greens went in, uh, it seems the Greens went in the negotiations uh, with that high on their list of priorities uh, to get a, a speed limit of 130 kilometers an hour, 120 kilometers an hour, something like they have in Austria or Switzerland or the other countries in Europe all around Germany. Uh, but it seems, uh, and some people uh, with a cynical tongue might say that uh, Linda, who's the head of the, the, the Liberals, uh, drives a Porsche, so it wasn't in his interest. But uh, at the end of the day, I think the FDP was uh, representing the interest of the German uh, car manufacturing industry. Uh, and I think it's it's legitimate to say that uh, the, the, the image of the German car uh, driving down the Autobahn without a speed limit is part of the German brand, is part, is part of the German car brand in any event. And uh, I don't think green people who vote for the Green Party care about that. Uh, and I think uh, I think a lot of people who who believe in the Green Party and voted for the Green Party see that as a big loss. Why is this thing so emblematic of um, a way of seeing German identity? Is it akin to freedom? I can drive as fast as I can. You know, I I don't think that many people actually uh, drive that much faster. So I, I think the percentage of the population who you know, drive. I'll have you know, yeah. sir, I once drove 
from <laughs> Bologna <laughs> to Augsburg and then from Augsburg to Luxembourg. And I had a British sports car, an MG, and I floored it as soon as I got over the German border. I could not believe the speed that I was going. I was doing about 120, no, 110 miles an hour and still cars were passing me. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think 90% of the, the drivers of the road wouldn't mind it being uh, 130 kilometers an hour. Uh, I, I don't think there are that many cars that can drive. I, I mean, if you're, if you're driving, what was that? So you're driving about 180 kilometers an hour, I think, right? Yeah. Something like that. Uh, a snail's then, pace. It was obviously a snail's pace. You know, I, I've uh, never... I, I think you're... Yeah, you're exaggerating a little bit. There are not that many cars that are driving much faster than 180. It, yes, it happens, and one car will pass you going 250 or something like that, uh, 250 kilometers an hour, but it, it's not that common. All right, okay. Um, so uh, we dealt with the speed limit. We've talked about the new uh, – you talked about the head of uh, of the Green Party, uh, Baerbock. Um, she's going to be the foreign minister. Am I right? In saying that it's always the person, uh, it's always the the junior coalition partner that has the, the foreign ministry. Um, and then also, what changes can we expect from German foreign policy with her as its foreign secretary? The foreign ministry used to be the, the ministry that the junior partner wanted the most. You know, back in the days of Gensha or or even Fisher, it was it was the the one with the highest reputation. But it's it's turned really to finances. The finance minister, you know, has the his fingers on the purse and has a lot more control. And and that's why the the, the designated uh, chancellor Olaf uh, Scholz is uh, was at last the finance minister. So. Whether the junior partner absolutely necessarily needs to get the uh, the foreign office, uh, it, it's generally still that way, but uh, it's not necessarily that way, I would say. Uh, it, it, it's it's you know, and I and I think the international stage has changed quite a bit in the last years. Uh, for example, there was the COP twenty six a, a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know, Russia and China only only sent their foreign minister. Uh, their foreign ministers, and that's uh, seen as a uh, you know a slight. And I think the last years, if if somebody wanted to get something done in Germany, uh, then then Angela Merkel uh, would would go. Not not. Uh, do you do you even know the the foreign minister of of Germany? I don't think most people. Hans do right Dietrich now. Genscher. No, there you go. Well, I, I, <laughs> a couple of years ago. A couple yeah, just a few, just a few ago, just a few ago. Um, but yeah. you made an excellent point that no, I don't know without looking. Um, I, I do yeah, not know. Yeah. To be fair, I mean, I, I, I've heard uh, the, the Secretary of State of the United States a couple of times in the last days, and I had to concentrate to remember his name. You know, it's it's just not as important as it used to be uh, when it was Albright, for example. Um, what are they going to be the international consequences? Uh, what does this mean for NATO, the EU? Um, are, what does this mean about how is this going to set the tone for Germany and its uh, place on the world stage? Yeah, that, that's that's a, a very interesting question because uh, I've looked through the, the contract a number of times now, the, the coalition contract, and there are uh, something like uh, 38 pages on uh, foreign policy. And uh, I, 
I wouldn't say it's a revolution in foreign policy, but it's a bit of a sea change. So the German foreign policy over the last years has really been uh, uh, one, I've seen it uh, described as opportunistic and mercantilistic. So they were looking for trade. Uh, they, that was sort of the driving force, trade and trade and more trade. And mm, human rights, if, if we trade with them enough and, and they get rich, they'll start paying attention to human rights, hopefully someday. Uh, in terms of China, Russia, Belarus, whatever. And the new document really puts, changes the priorities. The uh, human right, if you look through the pages on foreign policy, human rights is all over the place. So uh, as, a, as, a, as a high priority and how important it is, women's rights, uh, rem, uh, foreign, uh, feminist foreign policy is mentioned in there in English, uh, strangely enough. Uh, and... Uh, water, resources, uh, all these sort of things are, are uh, really important. Uh, also interesting uh, in, in the area of bilateral, uh, right at the beginning, you know, NATO, UN, very important. Then after that, uh, the US is mentioned a couple of paragraphs. And the next country that's mentioned is the UK um, as, as a, a important partner. And it sort of goes down the list of, of, of positions. The positions are, uh, I think most people consider the positions not very hard positions uh, on countries like Belarus, Russia, Russia China. Uh, they're, they're flexible, uh, let's put it that way. But uh, I think there's going to be a drive from both the, the, the FTP side of the coalition as well as the Greens uh, towards human rights as a priority. And having uh, Annalena Babak as the Green uh, Foreign Minister opens that door. I, 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 I don't know how successful she's going to be. Uh, I think we're living in a, a very difficult international environment uh, for Germany to be pushing human rights. Uh, but it would be interesting uh, to see Germany do that. Now is the time, good people in the audience. Raise your hand. Um, we have... Um an American who's resident in, in Germany, who's somewhat of uh, an expert on German uh, politics and, and culture. So if you ever had a burning question, now's your time to raise your hand and, and to ask it. Um, Mr. F, um, what, what, what's the general mood after, you know, three months worth of protracted negotiations? Are Germans just like, are they still excited about uh, a new government after three months worth of wrangling? Are they just exhausted and just saying, just get on and just get governing? What's the general mood after an election? When the parties came out last week on Wednesday, uh, they, they had a bit of a show uh, to present the contract. And uh, I think my, my, my American DNA came out. Um, I felt a... Uh, exuberance and optimism uh, from the politicians on the stage that I have never experienced from in German politics. Uh, it was it was really uh, astounding uh, how to see the three uh, the, the representatives of the three parties on the stage there, just saying that they they that they cooperated that they're 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 optimistic they're looking forward to working together, and uh, I thought that was uh, a, a quite a brilliant moment. 
Um, then I started talking to Germans and, and I realized it was just my American DNA uh, thinking that uh, that politics could be optimistic. They were criticizing everything from the way that people were standing, how close they were standing, where they were standing, what they said, everything. So uh, I was a little bit surprised, but I wasn't alone. I, I have talked to quite a few people who are um, optimistic about the, uh, this coalition. And uh, one of the interesting things was uh, Laschet, uh, the, the, the candidate from the CD, CDU CSU, who had failed miserably to get his party uh, into government, uh, he complimented them on the way they did it. So not just the way they presented it, but the fact that they had uh, kept their negotiation secret and and the the whole the whole deal he 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 showed quite a bit of respect for that so uh and i think a lot of uh, political commentators uh haven't only seen the negative side so i think we're hopeful on the other hand um right now uh, the pandemic in germany is uh, uh pushing everybody's moods uh, quite down as well as the weather you know but, what uh, that yeah, the situation with the pandemic has been uh, uh quite depressing uh, I, I need to stop you, Mr. Yeah. F. I need to stop you because I know that Kelly Saunders, who just brought her up on stage, has a question specifically about how Germans are dealing with any potential lockdowns. Uh, Kelly, your question. Uh, it's really great to um, to be able to speak to you, and I appreciate very filled you bringing me up here. Um, I know that there's been a lot of uh, talk about different different policies in different parts of Europe. I think Austria just had a pretty significant lockdown. I could be wrong. Um, but I was speaking to someone who actually is from America, lives in Germany currently um, a couple, uh, maybe a week ago, and then also to someone who's married to um, a German fellow. And it seemed that they both felt like Germany would likely wind up being one of the last places that uh, went into lockdown, but that they would probably do it. Um, I was curious. and I know you've been talking um, a lot about election politics, whatnot, how comparable is the situation to America in terms of, you know, how politicized something like the pandemic and potential lockdowns, um, how, how politicized that gets? And did that play any part in uh, in the elections? And uh, I forgot what the second part of the question was. Oh, and and how likely do you think uh, the case is that Germany will, will go into lockdowns? Uh, so uh, let me start with your question about uh, the effects of the election. I, I think an argument can be made uh, that the FDP uh, did as well as they did, uh, partially because uh, their uh, the Liberal Party is uh, stands for civil rights, and uh, in in that sense, they've always been sort of championing championing the idea of of people being able to decide whether they get vaccinated, whether they wear a mask. And, and a lot of the, the, the measures that have been uh, implemented, uh, they've been a little bit skeptical, not to say that they've been anti-vaxxers or anything that extreme, uh, but uh, they've been a little bit critical. And uh, it's going it, 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 them being in government right now and having had quite a few people uh, vote for them, I think it's going to be difficult for them to, to roll backwards and, and allow a lockdown and uh, mandate vaccinations. However, uh, today, uh, the Constitutional Court, uh, the Supreme Constitutional Court of Germany, uh, ruled uh, that the uh, measures from the last lockdown that were just ended, actually, uh, were uh, constitutional. 
So that kind of opens the door uh, legally, not completely because every situation is different uh, in terms of the law, uh, but the basic, uh, the basic balance of proportionality, how many of our rights are being taken away uh, for, for what reasons uh, has sort of been laid down. Uh, that that's okay. I'd like to point out that Udo's on the stage, and and he's also German, so I, I don't know if he'd like to say something. Hi, hi, Tiran. The highest priority for the new government from uh, 9th December on for the next uh, six or um, 12 months, uh, the priority is the fight um, against the corona pandemic. And in moment, we discuss uh, duty for vaccination cause um, cause the numbers of of people who um, who uh, get um, uh, an infect no, about coronavirus are uh, rising and rising and the hospitals are full and fuller and uh, so i think um, most measures in the next months uh, is a fight against the the corona pandemic and then We will see on uh, the relation you you discussed with um, as a, the, the 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 I think the the, the partner which we are um, which we are coupled uh, since six uh, years is France and the first visit uh, for Chancellor uh, future Chancellor Charles will go to Paris. It's I think most of the of the chancellors are going to Paris cause France and, and Germany are the most important states in Europe to, to hold uh, this complicated construction of European Union together and uh, in between Europe and uh, out of Europe, I think it's, uh, it's uh, the, the states, yeah, it's USA, it's our partner, since the end of the second world war and uh, either if uh, there is a president trump and it is ending and now i think the relations between uh, usa and and germany are um, much better uh, but to maybe to f finish off the the answer for kelly uh, you know you, you, i don't have a, a crystal ball but uh, right now Vaccine mandates are being dis discussed quite a lot, and uh, a lockdown. Compulsory is, mandates, you compul mean? Yeah, compulsory uh, vaccinations are yeah is, is being uh, uh, discussed uh, quite at the moment, and uh, you know for a while people were were saying we don't want to rule it out, but but now it's more we we need we need to go in that direction. That's what uh, Schultz is saying, and other people as well. Um, so uh, it, it's possible that it's going to go that way. Lockdown, uh, I think the big debate about lockdowns right now is uh, do we lock down the people who are vaccinated? Do we punish the people who, who did their duty uh, and went and got vaccinated? And I think a lot of people want to avoid that from happening. So uh, it might go uh, stronger in the direction of, of what Austria did. Of, of just uh, not allowing unvaccinated people uh, out uh, for anything that's not completely necessary. Yeah, I think um, most of the people are, are tired in Germany. We have now, um, from the adult um, people, we have uh, 80% percent who, uh, who got um, um, a vaccine 
and 20% not. And uh, the 80% say, hey, why we have the vaccinate, vaccinating and uh, we are, uh, we, we don't have our freedom we like, um, only uh, while 20% of the people do it not. That is the same question, which I think um, those that um, believe the science um, are asking all, all throughout uh, the liberal West, you know, is, is a case of the, the tail wagging the dog uh, type of thing. But um, I don't get too hung up on um, COVID politics. I know it's incredibly important. And as we said, the SPD are thinking about having compulsory vaccinations uh, to follow on, on from the Austrians. But but Manville, you, you've joined us on stage. Uh, lovely to see you again, sir. Long time no see. Uh, what's your question? Where do you think Germany in dealing with Eastern Europe, are they going to defend the rest of it, save for maybe Ukraine against Russian aggression? Or are they more interested in avoiding conflict with Russia than keeping a westernized wall between them and Putin? Yeah, difficult question. I think Germany is trying very hard right now to keep Poland on board. Germany and Poland have been at odds uh, for the last couple of months. Uh, the Polish uh, Supreme Court ruled that uh, Pol the Polish constitution uh, is above the uh, EU uh, charter and EU agreements. And that's was sort of a de facto leaving of the European Union. That's all kind of on hold. They're being punished with a million euros a day, which is essentially taking away all of the money that they would be getting from the EU or moving in that direction. So there's this sort of fight underneath the surface there. Uh, and uh, part of the problem is is that uh, Poland and Hungary are sort of on, let's say, the same team. And as long as two countries uh, are working together, the EU can't really do anything. If it was just one country, then they could. So uh, uh, essentially, uh, the, the elections in Hungary are, are, are next spring. And there's a candidate there who uh, represents the opposition. If he were to come into power... Uh, it would be uh, a very, it, it could become a, a completely different uh, ballgame. Um, as far as uh, the Ukraine and Russia are concerned, I'm pretty sure that uh, on the military level, Germany is going to be uh, completely in lockstep with NATO. Uh, but, but essentially, they, they would be making up the bulk of the NATO forces. If, if the U.S. tries to stay out of it, Germany would be pretty much the only player. You can, you can gather uh, no, up no, some no, Latvians no, no. and some Estonians yeah, yeah. and some uh, French soldiers uh, together, but I don't think Manville, really about uh, Manville, you, you're so wide off the mark that I, that I have to I have to step in. There's this very weird situation uh, geopolitically when it comes to Germany and the German military, for very obvious reasons because of World War Two. Germany militarily cannot lead any peacekeeping force. It never does in the world, let alone any aggressive force. And when it comes to European uh, competent militaries um, after the United States, arguably, and I'm not saying this because I'm a Brit, uh, the British Army is is the, the military which has the most amount of technical firepower. It's not only a military power, but it can project power with aircraft carriers, etc. And then France is on a similar level. Germany wouldn't have the politi uh, political, let alone military 
uh, where for all, let alone will to lead any mission against Russian aggression. It just can't happen because of the Second World War. Uh, the Bundeswehr has a very peculiar place in, in NATO because of World War II, which is um, we didn't discuss this with, with Tyrion. But one of the interesting things that Tyrion uh, kind of said to me off mic before we did the show was that whilst Germany isn't committing 3% of its GDP towards the military, it's committing 3% to what exactly, Tyrion? How did you uh, describe that? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, they want to... I'm not sure how solid the, the commitment is, but the, the idea of the commitment is 3% of GDP to international engagements. And the the idea would be two percent for the for, for, for military expenditures, uh, 0.7 for economic development, and then uh, the rest three would be for for the foreign ministry essentially. Uh, so it's a little bit of a play out of games. You want two two percent from us, we're going to give you three, but uh, we're going to do it on our terms uh, for peaceful uh, for peaceful international development. I think is is the idea. And it, it is going to be quite a odd situation with the U.S. putting, not that the U.S. is putting the EU at arm's length, but the U.S. is dealing with their own separate deal with Britain. Britain being no longer an EU member, but still but, participating but, in NATO. But, yeah, in but, a but very Western European conflict would be interesting. Mm. Uh, one of the reasons why Putin could grab the Crimea and the eastern Ukraine is because there is no uh, protection, uh, projection of protection uh, of power to the Ukraine. Ukraine wanted to join NATO at one point and that created massive ructions. Um, and NATO basically said no, and the Russians said absolutely no. So it meant that, uh, in effect, the Russians ha- had a free hand. But that's slightly another thing. Alex Gregory, uh, you've joined us on stage. You're going to be the last speaker today, uh, Mr. Gregory. So make sure that your question is a good one. Okay, uh, no pressure, I guess. Sorry if there's background noise. I'm a bit outside. Um, but yeah, you, the French-German cooperation was mentioned a little briefly. Something that I don't see get commented on all that much is um, how the future of that collaboration is going to work when it seems as though the populations are going in very different directions politically. Um, right now, the second and third um, place candidates for the presidency, and I know we're far out, are both kind of like uh, far right types, um, including one guy who announced yesterday and who literally said they will not replace us as part of his um, you know, starter speech. And he's uh, polling at 40% in a head-to-head against Macron. So this guy is more extreme than like Jorn Hooker even in Germany, who is seen as like the most extreme. And it just shows how like the electorate is very different from the German electorate on lots of questions and with Annalena Baerbock as kind of like the foreign minister who represents kind of things that like have pushed the French to these right-wing figures. I'm wondering if there's like any analysis in Germany of like these trends in France, if it's seen as less reliable, if it's kind of dismissed. I just haven't seen much coverage about how Germans are processing this or how the French, actually I see more about how the French are processing the kind of like greenward shift in Germany than I do the other way around. I think after after leaving um, after leaving Afghanistan, we discussed in Germany and also on the level of the NATO, which are the aims of the NATO in in the in the future. Yeah, because 
the leaving of, of Afghanistan has been uh, too short in between, I think, um, three, four months. And um, what happened uh, in the airport of, of Kabul, it was a catastrophe. And so we, I think, uh, we discuss um, the next 12 months or the next one, two years, um, which are the aims of the Bundeswehr, of the German army, in between the NATO and uh, in the uh, actions in Africa, in Asia, or or how you how you how you like it, and this will be a very very um, interesting discussion. I think I was astonished that the Bundeswehr, who gets much much money every year, is not able to uh, protect uh, the airport of Kabul and to migrate the people the afghan afghan people um who are working for the for the bundeswehr and for for the um development organ, organizations the, the german organizations that they're not able to protect them and to to uh, to transport them to uzbekistan and then then to germany To, to the point I was making to Manville, that the German army doesn't have the technical wherefore uh, for any uh, level of a, a complex mission outside of uh, German borders, let alone uh, defending uh, against an aggressive army. And it's a, a deliberate policy. You know, the German army doesn't have the material or the logistics the way that the French and the British do, um, who are... Um, global pa players in a way that uh, Germany just isn't. I don't know if my question wasn't heard, but I don't think it was addressed. And maybe it's just too in the weeds about France for anyone on stage to really answer. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't but you know what? The, know I, 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 yeah, I, I do think, um, Alex, it was actually a fair question. Very obviously, the drivers of the EU are France and Germany. Germany provides the money and the economic stability and deliberately uh, is always half a step emotionally behind France. France is the uh, emotional leader of Europe. But German politics, domestic politics, isn't French politics. The two things are very, very different. Though um, you do have, and Tyrion and Udo can speak much better to this than me, you know, you do have uh, the a far-right fringe, which is popular in the eastern bit of Germany. But what they don't have are those kind of charismatic uh, uh, kind of semi-intellectual figures like what you're getting in France, let alone, uh, you know, the uh, Front National, who are now, I know they've now renamed themselves, who have been getting, what, 25, 30% of presidential votes for, for forever and a day. So... Yeah, and, and I think every, you know every time there's an election in, in, in many of these countries, uh, this sort of pondering comes up. Oh, what if the the far right wins? Uh, I, I think when you're observing a country uh, next door, uh, if you're observing France or you're observing uh, the Netherlands from Germany, it's it's you know the media is going to make a big deal about it. But uh, I think the general population is just going to wait and see. But the, the, this this kind of worry mongering uh, happens every election. So uh, if it happens, then we'll have to deal with it. But uh, I, I wouldn't say that the uh, 
the German population, the French population are way far apart from one another on, on a lot of issues. Um, uh, is there a, a, a certain percentage of the French population that's a little bit more Eurosceptical, a little bit more right-leaning? Yes. Uh, it, I, but I think when you get down to two candidates in France, uh, and, and it's really about EU yes or no, I think it, it, it's going to look a little bit different than right now. And 40% is uh, not anywhere near where Brexit was. Uh, and on that note, I'm going to say, uh, folks, uh, thank you uh, for joining us. If you've been in the audience for this edition of Mid-Atlantic, which has been the first time that we've ever dealt with a country in Europe in its entirety. So we looked at the German election which was decided on the 26th of September. But it's only now, as we are at the start of December, that uh, the, the coalition government has its agreement in place and will actually take office. So, uh, Tyrion Fisher, I would like to thank you for, for doing an excellent job explaining uh, the machinations of German politics uh, for us. Uh, Udo, uh, thank you for joining us on stage. Kelly Saunders, as always, you're always welcome. Manville Smith, we thank you for your question. And uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, you threw in a great question right at the end. If you're in the audience, um, please give everybody a follow. Uh, they're, they're great people on this app, and we need to keep this app going. And the only way we're going to do that is by following people. And also, in it kind of getting into the, the meat of great discussions, but always being respectful to people, whether we actually agree with them or not. So give everybody a follow if you're in the audience. Also, hit the icon for for mid-atlantic uh generally i do these shows in either on either a wednesday or a thursday generally in the middle of the week uh we normally deal with us and uk politics every now and then uh we'll, we'll throw in something different today was one of those days so if you if you like uh, to hear somebody talk passionately and uh insightfully about about politics uh from around the world uh come and join the mid-atlantic club don't forget there is a podcast and if you're listening to the podcast and i know that some five thousand people religiously every week download the mid-atlantic podcast if you're listening to the podcast and you'd like to be in effect here for one of the live recordings quite simply download the clubhouse app you can do that by going into the apple uh, itunes uh called for a second or on the google play store download the app um create a profile then find mid-atlantic and then you will be alerted when uh, we whenever we go live with one of these shows and you can be in the audience you can ask a question it's like a live podcast don't forget folks left to center politics is right thinking politics but we don't demonize our right-leaning brothers and sisters we just try and win them over with the strength of our arguments there you go that's mid-atlantic again Tyrion, thank you uh, for joining us today thank you royfield Thank you very much. And uh, yes, thank you very much. Oh, they're so polite. Uh, Manville, where was your thank you? Thank you, guys. <laughs> uh, Mr. Gregory, it's not obligatory to say thank you. I don't know why everybody, why everyone's been so polite today, but but it's uh, it's something lovely to behold. I'm going to log off and say goodbye, everybody. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Take care. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Bye bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.